Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. Hey, 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 awesome AP students. This is Miss Ziegler here with your Time Machine Talk Show for the week. This week, we're going to be covering the Mongols, and it starts on page 513. So go ahead and turn there, and then we'll get started. All right, so let's look at our questions. The first question says, in what ways did pastoral societies differ from their agricultural counterparts? And then number two, compare the status of women in pastoral societies with their status in China during the Tang and Song dynasties. And the Tang and Song dynasties are on page 371 and 372. So that's what I want you to pay attention to as we read. Let's start on page 514. You can read the beginning part on your own. And then we'll start where it says the world of pastoral societies. It says, despite their many differences, pastoral societies shared several important features that distinguished them from settled agricultural communities and civilizations. So here's your answer to question number one. Make sure you're paying attention. All right. Uh, pastoral societies generally less productive economies and their need for large grazing areas meant that they supported far smaller populations than did agricultural societies. People generally lived in small and widely scattered encampments of related kinfolk rather than in the villages, towns, and cities characteristic of agrarian civilizations. Beyond the family unit, pastoral peoples organized themselves in kinship-based groups or clans that claimed a common ancestry, usually through the male line. Related clans might on occasion come together as a tribe, which could also absorb unrelated people into the community. Although their values stressed equality and individual achievement, in some pastoral societies, clans were ranked as noble or commoner, and considerable differences emerged between wealth, uh, wealthy aristocrats owning large flocks of animals and poor herders. Many pastoral societies held slaves as well. Furthermore, nomadic societies generally offered women higher status, fewer restrictions, and a greater role in public life than their counterparts in agricultural civilizations. So there's quite a few things there. I would start by saying that pastoral societies are smaller populations. They uh, generally live in small, scattered encampments with kinfolk. They are more mobile. And they give women more rights. Those are some key points there. All right, our next question was about women uh, in pastoral societies versus China. So let's take some notes on women in the Mongol Empire. It says, everywhere women were involved in productive labor as well as having domestic responsibility for food and children. The care of smaller animals such as sheep and goats usually fell to women. Although only rarely did women own or control their own livestock. Among the Mongols, the remarriage of widows carried none of the negative connotations that it did among the Chinese, and women could initiate divorce. Mongol women frequently served as political advisors and were active in military affairs as well. A 13th century European visitor, the Franciscan friar Giovanni di Plano Carpini, recorded his impression of the Mongol women. Girls and women ride and gallop as skillfully as men. We even saw them carrying quivers and bows. 
and the women can ride horses for as long as the men. They have shorter stirrups, handle horses very well, and mind all the property. Mongol women make everything. Skin, clothes, shoes, leggings, and everything made of leather. They drive carts and repair them. They load camels and are quick and vigorous in all their tasks. They all wear trousers, and some of them shoot just like men. Certainly, literate observers from adjacent civilization noticed and clearly disapproved of the freedom granted to pastoral women. Ancient Greek writers thought that the pastoralists with whom they were familiar were women governed. To Han Khan, a Chinese Confucian scholar in the first century BCE, China's northern nomadic neighbors made no distinction between men and women. So let's make some notes on what we have just read. Definitely put down that they are involved in productive labor. They enjoy a higher status. Uh, let's see. They care for small animals. Um, uh, oh, they were allowed to remarry. There were no negative connotations with getting remarried after you were a widow or after you were divorced. They were sometimes political advisors and active in the military as well. And then according to the friar, he said they pretty much did everything, including riding horses and hunting. You can also put, in comparison to China, the Confucian scholar believed that they were women governed and that there was no distinction between men and women. That would have been opposite of what was in China. All right, let's go on. It says the most characteristic feature of pastoral societies was their mobility. As people frequently on the move, they often referred to nomads because they shifted their herds in regular patterns to systematically follow the seasonal changes in vegetation and water supply. It was a life largely dictated by local environmental conditions and based on turning grass, which people cannot eat, into usable food and energy. Nor were nomads homeless. They took their homes, often elaborate felt tents, with them. According to a prominent scholar of pastoral society, they know where they are going and why. Although nomadic pastoralists represented an alternative to the agricultural way of life that they disdained, they were almost always deeply connected to and often dependent on their agricultural neighbors. Few nomadic peoples could live solely from the products of their animals, and most of them actively sought access to the foodstuffs, manufactured good, goods, and luxury items available from the urban workshops and farming communities of nearby civilizations. Particularly among the nomadic people of inner Eurasia, this desire for the fruits of civilization periodically stimulated the creation of tribal confederations or nomadic states that could more effectively deal with powerful agricultural societies on their borders. The Mongol Empire of the 13th century was but the most recent and largest in a long line of such efforts dating back to 1st millennium BCE. So for question number one, where it's talking about the differences, put down that nomadic pastoralists were dependent upon agricultural societies as well for trading things because the majority of what the pastoralist people did is that they lived from whatever their animals provided. But just as it says here in the textbook, they couldn't always live on just that. Sometimes they needed manufactured or farmed goods from the agricultural communities. And then after you write that down, turn to page 371 in your textbook, and we're going to look at the differences with the Song and Tang Dynasty and the women. So go ahead and pause this, and then you can start back up when you're ready. On page 371, 
Women in the Song Dynasty, it says the golden age of Song Dynasty China was perhaps less than golden for many of its women. For that era marked yet another turning point in the history of Chinese patriarchy. Under the influence of steppe nomads, whose women led less restricted lives, elite Chinese women of the Tang Dynasty era, at least in the north, had participated in social life with greater freedom than in the earlier times. Paintings and statues show aristocratic women riding horses, while the queen mother of the west, a Taoist deity, was widely worshipped by female Taoist priests and practitioners. By the Song Dynasty, however, a reviving Confucianism and rapid economic growth seemed to tighten patriarchal restrictions on women and to restore some of the earlier Han Dynasty notions of female uh, submission and passivity. So put down that during the Han Dynasty, women were supposed to be passive and submit to their husbands. And then during the Tang Dynasty, they got a little bit more freedom because they were influenced by the steppe nomads, that's talking about the Mongols, who lived a little bit less restricted lives on their women. And you can put down that under the Tang Dynasty, they had a little bit greater freedom. They had more of a social life. They were allowed to ride horses. But then because of revival of Confucianism during the Song Dynasty, things tightened up a little bit and they got a little bit more patriarchal as they were under the Han Dynasty. Let's keep reading get some more details. It says, once again, Confucian writers highlighted the subordination of women to men and the need to keep males and females separate in every domain of life. The Song Dynasty historian and scholar Sima Gong summed up the prevailing view. The boy leads the girl, the girl follows the boy. The duty of husbands to be resolute and wives to be docile begins with this. For men, masculinity came to be defined less in terms of horseback riding, athleticism, and warrior values of northern nomads, and more in terms of refined pursuits of calligraphy, scholarship, painting, and poetry. Corresponding views of feminine qualities emphasized women's weakness, retentance, uh, and delicacy. Women were also frequently viewed as a, distract a distraction to men's pursuits of the contemplative and introspective life. The remarriage of widows, though legally permissible, was increasingly condemned for to walk through two court guards as a source of shame for a woman. So definitely put that down under the Song Dynasty. Widows were not allowed to get remarried because it was shameful. The most compelling expression of a tightening patriarchy lay in foot binding. Okay, put this down. This is very important. Apparently, beginning among dancers and courtesans in the 10th or 11th century CE, this practice involved the tight wrapping of young girls' feet, usually breaking the bones of the foot and causing intense pain. During and after the Song Dynasty, foot binding spread widely among elite families and later became even more widespread in the Chinese society. It was associated with new images of female beauty and eroticism that emphasized small size, fragility, or uh, frailty, and deference and served to keep women restricted to the inner quarters where Confucian tradition asserted that they belonged. So the whole purpose was to make their foot smaller and then they couldn't walk as much. If you have seen Mulan, the grandmother in Mulan walks with a cane, and it's because her feet were bound when she was younger. And it basically like keeps the, the foot so small that it's very painful to walk. So they're restricted to staying inside the house, and they can't really get out as much. Many mothers impose this painful procedure on their daughters, 
perhaps to enhance their marriage prospects and to assist them in competing with concubines for the attention of their husbands. For many women, it became a rite of passage and a source of some pride in their tiny feet and the beautiful slippers that encased them, even the occasion for poetry for some literate women. Foot binding also served to distinguish Chinese women from their barbarian counterparts and elite women from commoners and peasants. So definitely put down that foot binding restricted women's movements, and this set them apart from pastoral societies such as the nomads. If you turn the page to 372, you can see kind of what it does. It's not very pretty, <laughs> and it definitely looks like it would be painful. Furthermore, a rapidly commercializing economy undermined the position of women in the textile industry. Urban workshops and state factories run by men increasingly took over the skilled tasks of weaving textiles, especially silk, which had previously been the work of rural women in their homes. Although these women continued to tend silkworms and spin silk thread, they had lost the more lucrative income generating work of weaving silk fabrics. So put down that in the factory, women were uh, kind of like their jobs were taken over by men during this time frame. But as their economic role in textile production declined, other opportunities beckoned in an increasingly pros prosperous Song China. In the cities, women operated restaurants, sold fish and vegetables, and worked as maids, cooks, and dressmakers. The growing prosperity of elite families funneled increasingly uh, increasing numbers of women into roles as concubines, entertainers, courtesans, and prostitutes. Their ready availability surely reduced the ability of wives to negotiate as equals with their husbands, setting women against one another and creating endless household jealousies. In other ways, the Song Dynasty witnessed more positive trends in the life of women. Their property rights expanded, so you could put that down. In terms of controlling their own dowries and inheriting properties from their family, a dowry would be the money that their family gives their husband when a woman is married off. So normally they weren't allowed to control that money, but here during the Song Dynasty, they start to get that right. Neither in earlier nor in later periods, writes one scholar, did as much property pass through women's hands as during the Song Dynasty. Furthermore, low-ranking but ambitious officials strongly urged the education of women so that they might more effectively raise their sons and increase the family's fortune. Song Dynasty China, in short, offered a mixture of tightening restrictions and new opportunities to its women. So definitely the Mongols, uh, the Mongol women had more freedom than the Song Dynasty, but you can put down that the things that were good under the Song Dynasty is that there was increased education in order for them to educate their children. All right, so let's go back to page 517. And we are starting in the second paragraph. And let's look at our question. So our next question, uh, gotta click on it here. Okay, our next question is, what was the impact of the Mongols on Eurasia? And question number four, describe the interaction between humans and the environment as discussed on page 518. All right, so we're gonna go on. It says, constructing a large state among nomadic pastoralists was no easy task. Such societies generally lacked the surplus wealth needed to pay for the professional armies and bureaucracies or governments that everyone sustained this oh sorry that everywhere sustained the states and empires of agricultural civilizations. 
and the fierce independence of widely dispersed pastoral clans and tribes, as well as their internal rivalries, made any enduring political unity difficult to achieve. Nonetheless, charismatic leaders such as Chinggis Khan were periodically able to weld together a series of tribal alliances that for a time became powerful states. In doing so, they often employed the device of fictive kinship, designating allies as blood relatives and treating them with a corresponding respect. Despite their limited populations, such states had certain military advantages in confronting larger and more densely populated civilizations. Before we go on, that last sentence that I read up there where it said, in doing so, they often employed the device of fictive kinship, designated allies as blood relatives and treating them with a corresponding respect. That's talking about when Genghis Khan or Chinggis Khan, whichever way you want to say his name, he had a blood brother that basically was not his brother, but they kind of formed this pack for a while. It ended up that it didn't work out, and um, the blood brother was killed by Genghis Khan. But when they first formed this pact, they kind of like sweared on blood that they would be relatives. And so that's what it's talking about there. All right, let's go on. It says they could draw on the horseback riding and hunting skills of virtually the entire male population and some women as well. Easily transferred to the role of warrior, these skills, which were practiced from early childhood, were an integral part of pastoral life. But what sustained nomadic states was their ability to extract wealth through raiding, trading, or extortion from agricultural civilizations such as China, Persia, and Byzantium. As long as that wealth flowed into pastoral states, rulers could maintain the fragile alliances among fractionist clans and tribes. When it was interrupted, however, those states often fragmented or split apart. Pastoral nomads interacted with their agricultural neighbors, not only economically and militarily, but also culturally, as they became acquainted with and tried on for size all the world and universal religions. At one time or another, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, and several forms of Christianity all found a home somewhere among the nomadic peoples of inner Eurasia. So did Manachism, a religious tradition born in 3rd century Persia and combining elements of Zoroastrianism, Christian, and Buddhist practice. Usually conversion was a top-down process as nomadic elites and rulers adopted a foreign religion for political purposes, sometimes changing their religious allegiance as circumstances altered. Nomadic peoples, in short, did not inhabit a world totally apart from their agricultural and civilized neighbors. Surely the most fundamental con contribution of pastoralists to the larger human story was their mastery of environments unsuitable for agriculture. So this one might go with the interaction between humans and environment. Question four. Through the creative use of their animals, they brought a version of the food-producing revolution and a substantial human presence to the arid grasslands and desert regions of Afro-Eurasia. As the pastoral peoples of the Inner Asian Steppe learned the art of horseback riding by roughly 1000 BCE, their societies changed dramatically. Now they could accumulate and tend larger herds of horses, sheep, and goats, move more rapidly over a much wider territory. New technologies invented or adapted by pastoral societies 
added to the mastery of their environment and spread widely among the Eurasian steppes, creating something of a common culture in this vast region. These innovations included complex horse harnesses, saddles with iron stirrups, a small compound bow that could be fired from horseback, various forms of armor, and new kinds of swords. Agricultural people were amazed at the centrality of the horse in the pastoral life. As a Roman historian noted about the Hans, from their horses by day, not the Hans, I'm sorry, the Roman historian noted about the Huns, so he's talking about the pastoral people. From their horses by day and night, every one of that nation buys and sells, eats and drinks, bows over the narrow neck of the animal, relaxes and sleeps so deep as to be accompanied by many dreams. Okay, to answer your question number three, it says, what was the impact on the Mongols on Eurasia? You could definitely put down that they interacted with agricultural people in that they traded with them. Politically and militarial, um, pastoral people had ties to extract wealth from the societies, the agricultural societies, by trading and um, extortion. You can also put down that they adopted agricultural religions such as Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. And then if we go to your next question about how they interacted with their environment, that would be on page 518. Definitely the interaction is involved with the fact that they have large herds of horses and sheep and goats. And so that's going to require a lot of grasslands. And prior to that, agricultural people really hadn't used the grasslands much. So that's going to kind of be how the Mongols will interact with the environment. Also put down that they invent new technologies such as horse harnesses, saddles with iron stirrups, the compound bow, armor, new swords. All these things enable them to survive on the steppe because it's not a very easy place to survive. It gets very cold in the winter, doesn't really have a lot of access to things that you need for survival and so that's why they mostly live off of their animals. Basically anything that the animal produces they use every part of it. Kind of like the Native Americans with the buffalo. All right, moving on to question number five. It says, in what ways did the Xinyao Arabs, Turks, and Berbers make an impact on world history? That'll be on page 519. So let's start on page 518 where it says, before the Mongols, pastoralist in history. It says, what enabled pastoral peoples to make their most visible entry into the stage of world history was the military potential of horseback riding and of camel riding somewhat later. Their mastery of mounted warfare made possible a long but intermittent series of nomadic empires across the steppes of inner Eurasia and parts of Africa. For 2,000 years, those states played a major role in Afro-Eurasian history and represented a standing challenge to and influence upon the agrarian civilization on their borders. One early large-scale nomadic empire was associated with the people known as the Zainyu, who lived in the Mongolian steppes north of China. Provoked by Chinese penetration of their territory, the Zainyu in the 3rd and 2nd century BCE created a huge military confederacy that stretched from the Manchuria deep into Central Asia. 
Under the charismatic leader of Modun, the Zhangyu Empire affected a revolution in nomadic life. Earlier fragmented and egalitarian societies were now transformed into a far more centralized and hierarchical political system in which power was concentrated in a divinely sanctioned ruler, and differences between junior and senior clans became more prominent. So, it starts out where they're fragmented, that means they're kind of separated, and they're egalitarian societies, which means they're equal. Then it turns to more centralized hierarchy of political system. So centralized means it's going to be in one spot, and there's going to be a hierarchy to it. It says, all the people who draw the bow have now become one family, declared Mandun. Tribute extracted from other nomadic people and from China itself sustained the Zhangyu Empire and forced the Han Dynasty Emperor Wen to acknowledge unhappily the equality of people he regarded as barbarians. Our two great nations, he declared, so doubt reluctantly, the Han and the Zhangyu stand side by side. So basically, the nomads at the time were forcing China to pay them tribute. Although it subsequently disintegrated under sustained Chinese counterattacks, the Zongyu Empire created a model that later Turkic and Mongol empires emulated. That means that they wanted to copy it. Even without a powerful state, various nomadic and semi-nomadic people played a role in the collapse of the already weakened Chinese and Roman empires and in the subsequent rebuilding of those civilizations. It was during the era of third wave civilizations that nomadic peoples made their most significant mark on the larger canvas of world history. Arabs, Berbers, Turks, and Mongols, all of them of nomadic origin, created the largest and most influential empires of the millennium. The most expansive religious tradition of the era, Islam, derived from a largely nomadic people, the Arabs, and was carried to new regions by another nomadic people, the Turks. In that millennium, most of the great civilizations of outer Eurasia, Byzantium, Persia, India, and China, had come under the control of previously nomadic people, at least for a time. But as pastoral nomads entered and shaped the arena of world history, they too were transformed by the experience. The first and most dramatic of these nomadic excursions came from Arabs. In the Arab Peninsula, the development of a reliable camel saddle somewhere between 500 and 100 BCE enabled nomadic Bedouin, desert-dwelling Arabs, to fight effectively from atop their enormous beast. So for your question about what impact did they make on the world, put down Arabs invented the camel saddle, which enabled them to fight while riding a camel, and just riding a camel in general. With this new military advantage, they came to control the rich trade routes in incense running through Arabia. Even more important, these camel nomads served as the shock troops of Islamic expansion, providing many of the new religion's earliest followers and much of the military force that carved out the Arab empire. Although intellectual and political leadership came from urban merchants and settled farming communities, the Arab empire was in some respects a nomadic creation that subsequently became the foundation of a new and distinctive civilization. Even as the pastoral Arabs encroached on the world of Eurasian civilizations from the south, Turkic-speaking nomads were making inroads from the north. 
Never a single people, various Turkic-speaking clans and tribes migrated from their homeland in Mongolia and southern Siberia generally westward and entered the historical record as creators of a series of nomadic empires between 552 and 965 CE, most of them lasting little more than a century. Like the Zongyu Empire, they were fragile alliances of various tribes, headed by a supreme ruler known as Kong Han, who was supported by a faithful corps of soldiers called wolves. For the wolf was the mythical ancestor of Turkic peoples. From their base in the steppe, these Turkic states confronted the great civilizations of the south, China, Persia, and Byzantium alternately raiding them and allying with them against common enemies, trading with them and extorting tribute payments from them. Turkic language and culture spread widely over much of Inner Asia, and elements of that culture entered the agrarian civilizations. In the courts of northern China, for example, yogurt thinned with water, a drink derived from the Turks, replaced for a time the traditional beverage of tea, and at least one Chinese poet wrote joyfully about the delights of snowy evenings in a felt tent. So you can write down that the Turks were um, good at like getting their culture into other civilizations and even their language spread. And then we're going to go on and it says, A major turning point in the history of the Turks occurred with their conversion to Islam between the 10th and 14th century. This extended process represented a major expansion of the faith and launched the Turks into a new role as the third major carrier of Islam, following the Arabs and the Persians. It also brought the Turks into an increasingly important position within the heartland of an established Islamic civilization as they migrated southward into the Middle East. There, they served first as slave soldiers within the Abbasid Caliphate, and then as the Caliphate declined, they increasingly took military and political power themselves. In the Seljuk Turkic Empire of the 11th and 12th century, centered in Persia and present-day Iraq, Turkic rulers began to claim the Muslim title of Sultan, or ruler, rather than the Turkic Kangan, although the Abbasid Caliph remained the former ruler and real power was ex exercised by Turkic sultans. So you can put down that the Turks had played a major role in the Abbasid Caliph by helping them fight and spread Islam and then also becoming rulers called sultans. Not only did Turkic people become Muslims themselves, but they carried Islam to the new areas as well. Their invasion of northern India solidly planted Islam in that ancient civilization. So put down that they invaded northern India and spread Islam there as well. In Anatolia, formerly ruled by Christian Byzantium, they brought both Islam and a massive infusion of Turkic culture, language, and people, even as they created the Ottoman Empire, which by 1500 became one of the great powers of Eurasia. In both places, Turkic dynasties governed and would continue to do so well into the modern era. Thus, Turkic people, many of them at last, had transformed themselves from pastoral nomads to sedentary farmers, from creators of steppe empires to rulers of agrarian civilizations, and from polytheistic worshippers of their ancestors and various gods to followers and carriers of monotheistic Islam. So the Turkic people were also transformed. They went from being pastoral to sedentary, and uh, they started worshipping one god instead of various gods. 
And they became more rulers versus just living on the steppe. It says, broadly similar patterns prevailed in Africa as well. All across northern Africa and the Sahara, the introduction of the camel, probably during the first millennium BCE, gave rise to pastoral nomadic societies. Much like the Turkic-speaking pastoralists of Central Asia, many of these people later adopted Islam, but at least initially had little formal instruction in the religion. In the 11th century CE, a reform movement arose among the Sanhara Berber pastoralists living in the Western Sahara, only recently converted to Islam and practicing rather that superficially, it was sparked by a scholar, Ibn Yasin, who returned from a pilgrimage to Mecca around 1039, seeking to purify the practices of the faith among his own people in line with orthodox principles. That religion or religious movement soon became an expansive state. The Alvarid Empire, which incorporated a large part of northwestern Africa, and in 1086 crossed into southern Spain, where it offered vigorous opposition to Christian efforts to conquer the region. For a time, the Almoran state enjoyed considerable prosperity based on its control of much of West Africa, gold trade, and grain-producing Atlantic plains of Morocco. The Almorids also brought to Morocco the sophisticated Islamic culture of southern Spain, still visible in the splendid architecture of the city of Marrakesh, for a time the capital of the Almorid Empire. By the mid-12th century, that empire had been overrun by its longtime enemies, Berber farming people from the Atlas Mountains. But for roughly a century, the Almorid movement represented an African pastoral people who had converted to Islam, came into conflict with their agricultural neighbors, built a short-lived empire, and had a considerable impact on neighboring civilizations in both North Africa and Europe. So your question was, uh, in what ways did all of these people have an impact on the world history? So make sure that you look back over that if you didn't catch them as we were reading them, but there were a lot of different impacts there. Okay, that portion gets you through the first five questions of your reading. The next portion you're going to be reading about the Mongol Empire. Pay very close attention to this part of your reading because later this week you are going to be using this information for an assignment. So make sure that you're paying very close attention. Once again, thank you for listening to the Time Machine Talk Show. If you have any questions, please let me know. I am available to help you out. Monday through Thursday, I'm in the library slash learning commons until 5 p.m. Come see me. I'd love to help you with anything that you need. Happy studying, AP scholars.